Jazz Club. Welcome back to the Geared Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Geared Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. It is October 14th, 2021, a Thursday, and also 163 episodes into Season 3, 229 into this podcast. We're going to talk about The Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. First published in 1525, Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will is acknowledged by theologians as one of the great masterpieces of the Reformation. It is Luther's response to Desiderius Erasmus's Diatribe on Free Will, written in his direct and unique style, combining deep spirituality with humor. Luther writes powerfully about man's depravity and God's sovereignty. The crucial issue for Luther concerned what ability free will has and to what degree it is subject to God's sovereignty. For Luther... This key issue of free will is directly connected to God's plan of salvation. Is man able to save himself, or is his salvation entirely a work of divine grace? This work is vital to understanding the primary doctrines of the Reformation and will long remain among the great theological classics of Christian history. Such is the summary on goodreads.com for the book, translated by J.R. Packer, which I did not realize going into it, but lo and behold, translated by J.I. Packer and O.R. Johnston, written by Martin Luther. I just finished it up the day before yesterday, after having started it back in August. And I give this book four stars, four out of five stars. It is good, but not my favorite. Luther is obviously very smart, he's very intelligent, he's very able to bring an argument and to counter arguments from Desiderius, Erasmus, or Erasmus of Rotterdam, if you will, or just Erasmus sometimes. Luther is very sharp-tongued, he is very witty, he can be downright biting, and mocking, but I would say if you put questions of tone and bedside manner aside, Luther makes a very compelling argument that there is no such thing as free will, or what we define as free will so often is illusory. How can God know everything that will be, and also how can what we read in the book of Romans from the Apostle Paul, how can all of that be true? That God is sovereign, that he pre-knows, pre-chooses, predestines the elect from eternity past. He knows who will choose him, and yet we have a choice. Is it not God who chooses us instead of the other way around? If you follow the line of reasoning that man has free will, it is we who choose God, but the scriptures are very clear. It is not we who choose God, it is God who chooses us. Now, I think it's a little bit more complicated than is always apparent, 
particularly when you get someone of Martin Luther's ability who is throwing in mic drop, choke slam, cage match style parries and thrusts against his rhetorical opponent. I think it's a little bit more complicated and that his way of mocking Erasmus and the position that Erasmus takes sometimes does not help us to understand the issue better. Sometimes that brings more heat than light to the issue. And I think this would have been a stronger work if his tone, if Luther's tone would have been less inflammatory, less combative. Now I say that, but how much of my perspective on such is informed by the standard fair Christian writing of our day? It makes it through the publishing process, and there's such a wide spectrum of what is termed Christian thought that very often publishers only publish what has the widest mass market appeal and Everything else, everything else that's contentious, potentially divisive, upsetting, maybe won't sell as well. And so let's not go there. Let's not publish that author. Let's not give them the sweet book deal. Let's not put them on a marketing tour, on a speaking tour, on a book signing tour. Let's not have them go and interview with big names who are going to help them get their message out there and build their brand and all of that. Luther made a name for himself because he stood up to the Roman Catholic Church, which was a very dangerous thing to do. He took his life in his hands, and that's not a euphemism, that's not an exaggeration. He was risking his life to disagree with the big names in the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century in the 15th century. It was not a hypothetical, it was an actual problem that if you disagreed on some minor point with a council, with a pope, with a cardinal, with a bishop, you could find yourself being arrested, tortured, forced to recant. You could find yourself publicly executed, burned at the stake, what have you, as a heretic. So then, heresy became more broadly defined than just, are you teaching something that's unbiblical? It became a catch-all for people who were upsetting the status quo. And at a certain point, you have to go back to what Jesus said when he says, woe to the scribes and Pharisees who invalidate the commands of God by the traditions of men. We are not following traditions of man when we embrace Christ. The power of the gospel is not that it is very traditional. It is that it is revolutionary and it goes against what the rest of the world says as far as how you save yourself. All of the other religions in the world are about saving yourself through effort, effort of the mind and the body, efforts at self-discipline, self-denial, restraint, doing pious acts, saying pious things, fulfilling whatever the law looks like 
in the tradition that your religion belongs to. That's how you are saved to the extent that you can be saved, to the extent that you need to be saved. But the gospel of Christ is that God saves. We cannot save ourselves. God had to do it. And moreover, that he did do it in Christ. Christ's atoning sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection paid the price for our sin against God. First and foremost, that sin which separates us from a holy and righteous God who, even though he is patient, he is long-suffering, he bears with us and he sends his reign on the just and the unjust, cannot, cannot allow our sin in his presence. It's antithetical to his holiness. And yet, because God loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This gets into some very difficult-to-understand questions when you start asking, okay, well then, is the whole world saved? Well, no. No, the whole, wor- the whole world is not saved. But it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes. So only those who believe are saved? Yes, that's right. Okay, well, who believes? Well, enter... Martin Luther, and Erasmus. Erasmus, I have not read. I've heard of him. I have read about him because he comes up anytime Luther comes up, and he comes up in any decent history of the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Counter-Reformation. But it would appear from Luther's response to Erasmus that the claim on the part of Erasmus is that those who believe are those who choose to believe. Well, that's a very Arminian position. We choose to believe in the gospel and then are saved. It is by grace through faith you've been saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. But Luther and Calvin and a great many Protestant Christians over the past five centuries have emphasized that Unless your will is regenerated in some respect by the Holy Spirit who draws you to the gospel message, you cannot believe. To the Greeks, the gospel of Jesus Christ is foolishness. To the Jews, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a stumbling block. The Jews who do not accept Christ, but they do practice Judaism, make much of the law, which is all about doing and not doing, eating and not eating, touching and not touching. It's about action. And then from actions, outward appearance, you are supposed to infer things about the inner man. To some extent, in some sense, there's validity to that view. But the trouble comes where you can have pretension, self-righteousness, which is abominable to God, Old Testament and New Testament, if we are conceited, if we think that we are saving ourselves, we're very wise in our own eyes, we're proud, God opposes us. 
because God sees not just what we do. See, we see what we do. We see what those around us do. And we have to reverse engineer certain assumptions about the character of the people who we observe. You get some idea from listening to what they say and their explanations of what they're doing as to why they're doing what they're doing. But you have to take their word for it. And if they're very, very clever, they might tell you that they're doing X, Y, and Z for these reasons, all the while their real reasons are quite other. Take, for instance, Machiavelli. Machiavelli writes The Prince, and he explicitly advises princes, rulers, those with civil power, authority, titles, position, to make a show of virtue outwardly and behind the scenes to be unconstrained entirely so that they can move against their enemies, they can do whatever is necessary to gain power and to consolidate their power and to secure their power. Make a show of virtue so that you get the people on your side and then behind the scenes do whatever is necessary to remove threats and obstacles to your path. When Jesus confronts the scribes and the Pharisees in the New Testament, he goes after this over and over again. He calls them whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, they look white and clean, but inside is dead men's bones. Outwardly, you are doing what you should be doing, it appears, but you're doing it for the wrong reasons, and your works are contemptible. God is repulsed by them. He knows that your heart is not subjected to him. Moreover, he sees what you're doing when you're not doing these good works in public and announcing yourself with horns and trumpets and tambourines. He knows what you really think in your heart of hearts, even though your lips are saying very pious-sounding things. But your lips are saying those pious-sounding things because you want to be heard by men and thought very pious. You want to be thought well of more than anything for very similar reasons to why Machiavelli gives the advice that he does in The Prince. Jesus says you first should clean the inside of the cup, then the outside will be clean as well. Why would you only clean the outside of a dish and leave the inside dirty? That's a great way to get sick. And lo and behold, when we do that in terms of our spiritual condition, we wash the outside of the cup, but the inside is still dirty and corrupt, then we find that we are not any healthier. In fact, we might be less healthy than people who make no pretense. So Luther, the backstory on him is he's a monk. Originally, his father wanted him to study for the law. He ends up going into a monastery. There's a story of him being on the road and lightning striking around him and his promising that he would enter a monastery and serve the Lord if God would spare him. So God does spare him, and Luther keeps up his side of the bargain. Luther then becomes a monk, and he studies. And as he studies, he then becomes a teacher. And as he becomes a teacher, and he starts comparing and contrasting what is in God's word with what is being taught by the Catholic Church, and He finds that the outside of the cup is clean, but the inside is very, very dirty. 
and nasty, and it makes people sick. And all of this is propped up by false religion, by a false piety. And that's part of what comes out, I think, as heat with some merit in bondage of the will. When Luther goes after Erasmus and his diatribe, he is not just going after Erasmus. He's going after a symbol of the entire problem with Roman Catholic tradition. You have people being appointed to high positions in the church because of their political connections and because of the political cover they will be able to give to temporal rulers who are governing along the lines that Machiavelli would approve of. And lo and behold, when people are appointed to high offices in the church for these reasons, with this aim, when there is no separation between church and state, and the church is running interference on accountability for corrupt rulers, you can't just go criticizing the office holders of the church without running into problems with the temporal rulers. To go after one, you are going after both. The two are intimately connected, and thus, it seems to me some of what bothers me, whether it should bother me as much as it does, in Luther's Bondage of the Will <clears throat> is his effort to make very, very clear, for one thing, I'm not afraid of you. I fear God. I don't fear you. He is in the mold of John the Baptist, as he sees it, calling Herod to repentance for taking his brother's wife. Luther is not afraid. That's the big idea. I'm not afraid of you because I fear God. If anybody should be afraid in this scenario, it's you, because you are offending God with what you say that is not correct. It is not true. Now, in this particular case, you are dealing with the question of whether we have free will or whether God sovereignly chooses to harden those whom he hardens and to soften those whom he softens, those he draws, those he elects. And there's no getting around this. However much <clears throat> I want to argue the point, which I do, I do want to argue the point on the side of how much or little or any at all we have the ability to choose. There is no getting around the fact that God's word tells us, assures us that the elect are foreknown and forechosen and predestined by God. There's no getting around that. It's biblical. To throw that out and to say, well, that's not fair. I don't like that. Where do you stop? What else are you going to throw out? You might as well throw out the entire Bible, the entire gospel message. You can't just pick and choose. It's not a <clears throat> salad bar. Oh, I don't feel like having croutons on my salad today. I don't feel like having vinaigrette. I want ranch. I don't want this. I want that. That's not that way. It doesn't work that way. But you get to some very interesting questions when you start unwrapping this within the context of the Reformation and the Roman Catholic Church and hundreds of years of 
the power of the king or the emperor or the dukes and the counts being very much wrapped up with the church, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I did a book review here about a week ago, actually, almost exactly a week ago, of Charlemagne by Johannes Fried. And what's interesting, if you read Charlemagne, you see some of the origin of this trouble that Luther runs into. Charlemagne comes to the rescue of the Pope over and against pagan barbarians and over and against Catholics, supposedly, or at least people who live in ostensibly Christian lands who are opposing the Pope. And Charlemagne comes in and he helps to solidify and cement the traditional view, which in Luther's day means that Luther takes his life in his hands to contradict the Pope and councils and learned scholars of the church and bishops and cardinals, etc., etc. Sellers of indulgences who have the papal approval, they have the approval of the cardinal, the bishop, etc. Charlemagne helps to solidify the place of the Pope in Western Europe. In the East, you've got Orthodox Christianity, but in the West, you've got Roman Christianity. And there are disagreements on finer points. For instance, you get the Irish clergy who have their own traditions by the time they get into close contact with Rome and the Roman church power structure. And you have conflict there and you have debates. And you see that in Charlemagne as well, where he has got Irish church officials, learned scholars from Ireland who think very differently than the Romans do. And they are mocked for it because how dare you? If you don't think like the Romans do, if you don't exactly 100% agree with the Roman traditions on doctrine and practice, then we are going to make merciless fun of you, and we might even abuse you physically. We might even put you to death if you really, really upset us. Well, this is gangsterism. And in that kind of a context is... The worst thing to get heated in your rhetoric as you're trying to drive the point home that you're not afraid of these people, we should actually be afraid of God rather than men, we should obey God rather than men if we have to choose, is the worst thing that Luther engages in some heated rhetoric. It's not. Plain and simple, it's not. If he had to err on either being explicitly clear or being very gentle, meek, and mild, I prefer that he aired the direction that he did in being rough. And for that matter, people who are very pretentious, who are very hard of hearing, need the kinds of responses that Jesus gives to the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus warns the people that unless 
their righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, they will in no ways enter the kingdom of heaven. He explicitly warns the people to not pray and give like the scribes and the Pharisees do. The Pharisees pray on the street corner so they can be heard by men, so they can be thought well of. Listen to how eloquent and pious I am. Aren't I great? Jesus says that God is not going to reward that. If you're doing it to be heard by men, to be thought well of by men, you've already gotten your reward. If you're giving and you're announcing your giving so that people think well of you, you've already gotten your reward. Whatever your reward is going to be, you get it from the people because that's what you were in it for. If you really wanted to be rewarded by God, you would do it even if it gets you punished rather than thanked. You would do it secretly, actually, so that God alone sees. And then God would reward you. If you were doing it to please him, he would reward that. But this question of free will is complicated. And sometimes I wonder if the issue gets confused a little bit when you potentially have corrupt men, part of a corrupt establishment, in this case the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, who believe some things which have some merit and they've mixed those meritorious positions in with indefensible positions, indefensible claims. One of the things that causes me to go there is what I've read about Luther not believing that the book of James should be in the New Testament. He didn't like the book of James. And do you know why he didn't like the book of James? He didn't like it because James says at one point, show me your faith without works. I will show you my faith by my works. And Catholics in Luther's day and even on up to the present seized on that and said, aha, if you believe there should be fruit. Well, that's true. James is scripture, but you can very easily take that and run with it into something that is not true, which is actually antithetical to the gospel message. It is by grace you've been saved, not of works. By grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Because the boasting thing is exactly what Jesus warned the Pharisees and the scribes against, and moreover, what Jesus warned the people about in saying, don't be like the Pharisees and the scribes. That boasting offends God, and it should It has every reason to offend God. God is not being self-indulgent or untoward in any way to require, to insist upon, to demand full credit for himself, full glory for himself, for saving those he saves. If we don't give God the full credit and we reserve the fat so to speak, the chief part, the best part for ourselves, are we not in some measure or perhaps to the fullest extent 
engaging in the very same kind of sin which got Lucifer and a third of the angels thrown out of heaven. Are we not putting our throne above the Most High and sitting our seat above him? I saved myself. Yes, yes, God did that thing, but I had the genius to appreciate it. Am I not great? Well, that's Luther's whole concern in a nutshell, is that to argue for something such as free will in the way that Erasmus allegedly does is to take that chief part of the credit for saving ourselves. And to be fair, even though it does not necessarily follow that we have to think of the will, at least I don't, I don't know that it is. I don't know that I'm fully persuaded of Luther's view. Although it's hard to understand, admittedly, and that's part of why I'm not sure I agree with it. And for another thing, because he's so able, because he's such a skilled rhetorician and debater, there's a part of me that gives pause because I don't want to be taken in by eloquence or now versus when he was writing, now he is such a monolithic name I don't want to agree with him just because he's got a big name. He's well-known, famed, reputed. And actually, for that matter, I think that Luther would appreciate my reasons for being reluctant, hesitant, cautious to agree with him. I think that Luther, in a lot of his response to the diatribe on free will, by Desiderius Erasmus. Luther touches on this again and again and again because when Luther's writing Bondage of the Will, it is Erasmus who has the preeminent place in terms of fame, in terms of being a household name, in terms of being well-respected. And Luther basically calls him out for banking on that. Your arguments in favor of free will are a lot of condescension and dismissiveness, Erasmus. You think that because we owe you so much, because you're so learned, because everybody's going to defer to you, you don't have to bring your A-game to arguing your case here. I'll take up the cause. I'll accept that challenge. But in our day, in my circles anyways, Luther is the big name. And Erasmus is a footnote. We only know Erasmus in my circles because some of us read Luther. Now that could be too broad. I probably know some people who have read Erasmus directly instead of getting him secondhand through Luther and Luther's counterarguments. But you take my point. I trust. It is agreed by me that man in any measure believing that he saves himself is contrary to the gospel message. But it is not obvious to me that believing in some God-given ability to choose is necessarily taking credit for salvation. And I don't want to argue the point to the extent of 
getting hung up on that. Like that's the biggest deal, except God's design is critically important. And I think Luther would agree with that. I think everybody should agree with that. God's design, how he actually created us and engineered us and wired us and how he saves us is critically important. And I don't want to believe something untrue about that, even though I am wanting to have unity of mind and I'm wanting to understand these things as well as anybody can. If I'm just being dim-witted and slow, well, then I want to pick up the pace and not be content with that, not be a know-nothing. But I don't want to be over-hasty to agree for similar reasons to the corrupt establishment in the Catholic Church at the time Luther was writing. We're so quick to agree with the person who our circles tell us we have to defer to so that we get the benefit of public credit for piety, for sounding very wise, for being very proper, so that we get a political benefit, we get a social benefit. And don't you dare disagree with anything here or question anything here or else we burn you at the stake, literally or metaphorically. I don't want to be cowed by that. And given that that's the case, that's probably the biggest thing I appreciate and admire and am glad for in reading Bondage of the Will by Luther. That courage, that love for God and love for the truth and love for God's word by which we are able to love the truth and love God and consequently love one another by God's grace. That is a fantastic example. And that is why we're still reading Luther's books and talking about Luther and crediting him for so much five centuries on, because that example is a fantastic example. Can it potentially get a little carried away on some points? Yes. Yes, it can. Can we misinterpret some of what he's saying here and go off the deep end in dangerous ways, theologically, spiritually, philosophically, culturally, interpersonally? Yes, we can. And that's why God's word has to be the arbiter, the rubric. It should not be man's reason or man's rhetorical ability or man's reputation, which becomes the primary arbiter. It should not be over hasty agreement for political purposes. Our motivation should be to subject our will by God's grace to God's plans and design, to his truth. So I would recommend this book. I would recommend it a lot more highly than I recommended Charlemagne by Johannes Fried. I didn't give it five stars because, frankly, I think it could have been better. But the nice thing is, my four-star rating is almost exactly, it's within seven-hundredths, actually, of the average rating on goodreads.com. So I wasn't trying to aim for what everybody else thinks of it, but I gave it a four out of five. Pick it up, check it out. It's a very thought-provoking treatment, not just on the question of free will, but also, I would say, on the question of how do we engage in these kinds of debates and discussions? Because if anything, I think we've gone too far in the playing patty cake direction in our day. We're far too tame in the way that we 
contend for the faith when there are disagreements on important doctrinal questions. I don't believe, I am not convinced that we should go as far as Luther does in commissioning an artist, for instance, to paint demons and devils defecating popes and bishops and priests of the Catholic Church. I don't know that we should go that far, although it is funny. But I do think we've gotten far too tame in our contending for the faith and not, uh, not for no reason was Luther as fiery as he was. So I got to leave it there. I need to go to work as always. Thank you for listening. If you've checked out Bondage of the Will and have a different view on it, let me know what you think. But that's all I got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. <laughs>